Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sorry about the noise. My neighbour's sanding his deck. My motto? Don't work on your deck. Play on it. Life's good with a Trex deck. Low maintenance with a 25-year residential warranty. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. It's time to cast off on a new adventure. This is Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood. Hello and welcome to Real Adventures from wherever you are listening right around the country. Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood joining you this morning to talk all things fishing, boating and the great outdoors. Good morning to you, Redmond. Good morning, Patrick. Uh, how's your week been? A little bit of running around last weekend, which would have done you pretty good. Week's been good, the weather's been nice. Amazing, 30 degrees at A+. plus. So not only has the fishing been good, the used car and four-wheel drive market continues to go absolutely <laughs> berserk. It's just, it, it is totally ridiculous that, that people are paying more than they were 12 months ago for second-hand cars. We're seeing it in the, in the used Toyota space. It is crazy. We're seeing it in the boating space and it's been happening in the caravanning industry over the last three to four months because of the lack of stock with all these things. Four by four, lack of stock with boats and lack of stock with um, with caravans. Like, There's not even going to be a Melbourne boat show this year. I was about to say that. The boat show's been canned because suppliers don't have anything to bring. <laughs> yep. It, um, and we're getting, we're getting a lot of questions on our, on our socials around the best way to find a bargain or at, at least a competitive price when it comes to a second-hand boat. And it's a really tough market at the moment because there's such a want and desire for boats because people haven't spent money over the last 12 months. So it's almost, we've, we've all got this sort of, um, you know, if we haven't been spending, we have this urge that we need to spend money on something. And if you've had a boat at some stage in your life, then you sort of remember the good times for it. You don't remember, you know, the reason that you sell it because you don't use it for time etc but the second hand boat market redmond like you look through gumtree boatsales.com.au the inflated prices are quite scary quite often you're looking at you know i was looking at a, um, a four or seven meter um quintrex fish about might have been earlier a couple of days ago and you know four or five year old boat is is a thousand two thousand bucks More. cheaper than a brand new boat yep. 
that is straight off the showroom floor, but you can't get them off the showroom floor. Like it, it's just ridiculous at the moment. And, and I've always been the one to say, uh, I'm not, I'm not. Okay, I'll make it. Uh, I'll dumb it down, Patrick. When a left-handed screwdriver comes out, that's when I'll start restoring boats. But <laughs> now is the time, I think, to start restoring boats if you're into it. Because, for example, the V19R Haynes and your 17s, they're such a sought-after boat in the market and they're quite expensive to buy. But if you have the capabilities of using a left-handed screwdriver, go get out there and actually uh, maybe pick up a bargain. You might get a hull for six grand or five grand, the hull, just the hull itself. Yep. And you could probably equip this with a full fit out over the next, say, well, during lockdown, it would have been a better idea to do it then because you wouldn't have had, you would have had a lot of time. On, a lot of people would have had time on their, time in their hands to kill. So basically, if you're out there and you know how to build a boat and you want to make some money, uh, restore a boat, a 19 Haynes or whatever it is. It might be an old Huntsman or a Pride. Restore it and you could probably sell it for some seriously good money or keep it and have a really, really good boat that you know literally inside out. Got a few questions on the social club coming up around restoring of boats and the, and the right products to use. We've got a massive show of real adventures coming your way this morning. We're catching up with John Cahill from Ebb Tide Tackle Redmond. We're going to talk about um, topwater fishing for tuna. It's a really um, good chat. We're looking forward to... Um, to going through with John, the intricacies around that. And there's still plenty of tuna being caught at the moment, Redmond. They are. There is plenty of tuna. It's, uh, I, keep saying to, to, I keep saying on the show, and I, might, I may be wrong, and I hope I am wrong about it. I, I hope they don't go anywhere. I'm still, in my head, think they will. Skeptical. Yep. Uh, they're definitely in smaller in size, Pat. We are seeing some wonderful-sized tuna, like some seriously good tuna out there. And be, I've noticed even the charter boys out there, they are starting to get a few of the smaller ones, which I don't know where they've been or where they've come from or they've just been amongst the fish and it's just a patch that's there at the moment. Uh, you, know, you know what's killing me at the moment? It's called this little kid, Finn, having a, having a child, Patrick. I'm not getting on the water as much as I need to. What, fatherly duties? Jesus, yeah, Finn, a father's tough. But anyway, he holds me. We went to Juralinga and the aquarium. We'll talk about the aquarium a bit later as well. I've been a dad this week, but I did manage to get onto the tuna. We got some beautiful-sized fish. I did my best to get you on the water as well and we had really, really good fun. So... Tuna fishing's good. The whiting fishing's magnificent. And we've come off that full moon. If you had seen Monday night, how good that moon looked, it was massive in the sky, clear blue, uh, clear, I say clear blue sky, but it was night. So clear sky with stars. It was seriously a really, really big moon. And that's what caused those tides that we had. We had a lot of water in and around our estuaries and bays. And in the ocean, it's quite full too. But now we've pulled off the other side of it. And these tides are massive. And it's what I really, really like to fish. And as we're going to come into the middle of the moon in, the, in this next few days to the week, what we're going to see is more stable tides. So we're not going to have those big six knotters. We're going to have those perfect tides, those five knot tides in the, around the heads there. And the fishing is going to be red hot. Whiting, squid, uh, the squid, I'll be honest, they went hard. I've, I've never thought I'd say the day that squid was hard to catch around the local areas. But they got a bit tough to catch, Pat. But they've fired back up in big, big numbers. And the fishing is out of control. And we're going to talk a little bit today about how to approach autumn. And uh, one of those species of fish that we want to approach is a snapper. It's how many, like You hear about the craze through snapper season, Pat. And how many messages do we get people asking about snapper? Constantly, yep. And snapper in the next few months is going to be massive for us. And what I mean by that is everyone crazes November, November, October. There will be prime snapper fishery. But in saying that, the best is, I think the best is yet to come. And what I mean by that is, as we go into these slightly cooler waters into April, what happens is those snapper coming down to that prime spawning, uh, spawning temperature in the water, which is around that sort of 16 to 18 degrees, which is 
We're approaching the 18 as we speak, and these snapper are going to be plentiful. Now, when we fish them, we tend to fish that deeper water out from that Mount Martha region, or even Karen, but you want to get out into those 20 metres of water to just get that slightly cooler temperature. But the difference between these school of fish to your normal snapper season is a lot of that snapper fishery is three to five kilo, where this time of the year, they're even they're big. They're, they, a lot of the fish we catch are up with up to nine kilo. A lot of them, like a lot of that seven kilo, a lot of that eight kilo fish. So, and what I mean by a lot, I'm not talking every fish is eight kilo, but you go out and expect to get a handful of yeah, fish. Yeah, some nice, yep, some really really big fish. So the snapper fishery is something that I'm really really looking forward to in the uh, in the coming weeks. Looking around the country at the moment, there's some incredible sort of social media um, viral posts going around the West at the moment with the huge numbers of, of salmon that we're seeing right up and down the Western Australian seaboard. There's a bit of a war of words happening at the moment with the SA Kingfish and how it's being managed. Now, our great mates uh, at SA Angler have been very vocal around their nerves with how this fishery is being managed and they've got great concerns like they had with the snapper fishery on yep. where this could possibly go. Understandable. So your your initial read on this, not so so clearly this is this is a recreational angler's concern. Now I'm I'm certain that uh commercial fishers will will have their own opinions on on, you know, um what needs the importance of of yeah, well, their own livelihood and the fact 100%. that they've got to you know support their families and all that sort of thing, um, but there's a real war of words happening at the moment, isn't there? Yeah, and I've always been one to support commercial fishing. Uh, it's something that I've I, I think it's I think there's enough fish for everyone in the way that the, it's monitored the sustainability of all our fishing around our whole state and into the country with all our fisheries departments is done really well, Pat. Now, if it's some, but, but clearly. It was mismanaged oh, and that's in, in South Australia 100%. With, with where the snapper, snapper fishery ended up and the pressure that it's put on local towns that, that relied upon having um, the tourist dollars come in because of the snapper fishery. Yep, okay. You know, we go to these, these local towns right around um, South Australia because of the incredible snapper fishing that they provide and then when it does get mismanaged it puts a huge amount of pressure on those towns and pressure on the local shops because all of a sudden they don't have the same influx of tourists coming to fish because you can't fish for snapper. You know, you've got your watering fishery and depending on where you are, if you head around Lincoln and you, and you, and you pop down there or, or Victor or Jervis Bay and you'll start to hit, obviously, tuna. But it does put a lot of pressure on the local communities. I couldn't agree with what you just said anymore and that's the thing, if it needs to be done, it just needs to be done. And it doesn't just affect the kingfish. Um, the migration of the kingfish doesn't just necessarily affect South Australia. The snapper fishery there sort of, they say the fish can make our way, but they hold there too. Where the kingfish fishery that they have there also makes their way to Victoria too. And our kingfish in Victoria, and I'm talking up to Malacuta, and I know we get the New South Coast, a uh, New South Wales coast run that come down also to Victoria, is these fish, when they were trapping them in big numbers, in the heads in Portfolio Bay, we rarely saw a fish we yep. didn't this is years ago yep so with with whatever they did with the trapping they put obviously a lot of our things in place to help generate the species again and it's worked regenerate because it, yep. regenerate the whole thing because our fishery is insane at the moment it is fantastic 
So whether the commercial, what they're going to do, is going to affect the whole the whole nation, I should say, rather than just South Australia in itself, is no good. And we don't want it to affect a South Australia with the with the snapper fishery, with what has happened with the snapper fishery. So I'm, I, I need to put more research into this myself, as in they're just signing petitions and stuff at the moment. It'll be very interesting to see exactly what comes from the petitions and where they actually want this to go th- further through to get the research that needs to be done. Yeah, there's got to be a way not only to to appease commercial fishermen and make sure that everyone can can create a and continue a sustainable lifestyle, but also provide recreational fishers with opportunities to catch kingfish and the like. We spoke on the show last week uh, around the potential for mandating engine kill switches. Yep. Um, this is happening in the US from April, from now. Um, so all boats in the US up to 8 metres long will now uh, require a, a, qu- a kill switch fitted or kill switch lanyard fitted to the skipper. Um, fascinating, Redmond. It is, and this is coming off the back of, like you said, our conversation last week. And if you do want to listen to any of our previous shows, make sure you download the Real Adventures app. There's plenty of things to do on the app. But yeah, you're spot on. It's... Uh, we, we spoke about it in depth last week. So like I said, if you're not sure what we're talking about, jump back on the, the app and check it out because lanyards are, are a lifesaver, I think. I, not that I use them, and it sounds dumb for me to say it, and it probably is dumb for me to say it, but it's just not something, Pat, that you and I get on the boat. And, and does it ever come to your mind to put a lanyard on, in all honesty? No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. So, But when they went in depth around, you know... Um the importance of it, it made sense. The shutdown of the engines is essential for safety reasons. If the operator is ejected from the vessel, yep. the shutdown may prevent the operator from impacting the vessel's spinning propeller, may aid uh, the operator in safely returning from the drifting vessel, etc., etc. Um, but they've also they been talking smart. when the US Coast Guard, you know, sent out a, a statement for for the for the change. So, um, and as you said, they are being smart yep. because it doesn't take into account if you are. Trawling the tuna or whatnot, or you're back in the boat harbour. Yeah, um, you you don't have to um, you don't have to have the lanyard on. It's only when you're up on the plane. Because to, and to make a bit of sense of, sense of it all, if if you're trawling for tuna at say eight to ten kilometres per hour, I believe, and I'll say from experience, I don't think me trawling at eight to ten kilometres an hour is going to with a, whether a lanyard on this it might shut down the engine. But a lot of that time I'm trawling for tuna is I'm actually being very active on the deck. So yep. if I'm trawling, I'm constantly looking out. I'm helping the boys set lures and whatnot. So there I think was no way it would be practical. It's not practical, no. To be tied to the helm no, at that trawling speed. There's not. And they're saying basically anything of speed or into a so-called plane on a boat, which is where your boat gets up on its plane ready to take off, that's when you need the uh, the lanyard to come into play, Pat. So, yeah, I think it's a great idea in that, in that as- in aspect. So... Good on US for putting it into play. Got a massive show of Real Adventures coming your way this morning. The Social Club is up next. You're listening to Real Adventures. You're listening to Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood. Welcome back to Real Adventures. It's time for The Social Club where we take your questions from social media or better yet, download our Real Adventures app. It has all our latest tips, tricks, recipes, and podcasts, which you can access at the palm of your hand, and it is free to download from wherever you download your apps. First up is from Hugh. Red, is it worth heading to southwest Victoria in search of barrel bluefin tuna now? Can you please take us through the spread of lures that you use? It would be good if I had to spelt that right when I rewrote it for you today, Patrick, wouldn't it? Sorry about that. That's okay. That's all right. That's all right. You got it? I'm... 
Well read. Uh, send, in, send into your your personal. It Facebook was sent into mine. I wanted that. to I wanted to answer this because it's uh, extremely relevant. Uh, thanks for sending in, Hugh. Uh, basically, it's relevant because this time last year, just before lockdown happened, there was barrel booth in court. Yep. Now we don't know exactly what happened now because no one was allowed to fish. Yeah, but. There's fish there. There has to be fish there, and if they're not there, they're not far away. So, right. so how are you going? So you've got your the spread of lures that you use, but you've also got different sizes. So how are you going to, um, how are you going to determine yep. which is the best lure size to use? Because you spoke last week around you're not going to head down there until you get sort of consistent reports yeah. of of good fish being caught. Like you're talking to people down there, finding out what size lures that they're using, and then sort of determining how you're going to attack it yourself. Yeah, and I'll, I'm going to talk to you about how I actually attack uh, the, the barrel tuner. And for, his, for this instinct, we'll talk about Portland as such because Portland's, I guess, one of the homes of barrel bluefin tuna. So what I mean by that is uh, I'd look, I, I am going to wait for a few more reports to come. Uh, I work in the industry. It's like it's not... It's not practical for me to just to go search for fish four hours away when I've when I've got work to do here. Yep. So when they do come, I'll turn up, and that's where I'll do my work for the punters. Don't get me wrong; if I get a little bit of a boost of energy, I might head down there and have a little bit of a look, Pat. But when I'm going down there, as I'm approaching it every every day as it stands. Now you got to be smart on when you're going to fish. If it's going to be glass calm fishing, that's when they're probably going to be at their hardest to catch. A few aspects to that is. Unless gonna, unless the boat traffic is extremely <laughs> low and there's no one fishing. 100%. That was going to be yep. the first one is if there's boat traffic, it makes things harder. Yep. Birds come up. Everything comes up in front of the seals. And for instance, you might be the first boat there and you want to hope you are the first boat there because that's probably going to be that person's best shot at, for anyone on the water's best shot at getting a fish off that school because once the boats get really active on it, and you do get the odd day where they just go absolutely bananas and everyone doesn't gets a it doesn't yeah. matter. But we're talking about when, on your average days. There's another method that we've spoken about previously on the show. We had a guest last year, Simon Rinaldi from Red Hot Fishing Charters, fantastic operator out of Portland there for the barrel bluefin. Now, Simon did a lot of uh, cubing and using pilchards to catch fish. And I did a bit of it too. I wasn't a massive fan of it. it, it don't get me wrong, it works really, really well. I just... I, only, well, I managed to get a few fish doing it, but it, it, it is dynamite. And what I mean by that is he's pulling up on these bait balls, and rather than scaring the bait balls down by trawling over them, he's sitting off them and throwing handfuls of pilchards in the water and dropping a pilchard uh, in with a hook in it in its head and throwing it into the fish to hook up. And it works really, really well as well. So there's a couple of methods to use. The days how I'm going to approach it is I want it to be slightly on the rougher side, not dangerous where I'm going to bloody tip my boat. I just want it to be rougher. It's slightly rougher. It keeps the boat traffic away. And a good way to look at this is a northerly wind. Northerly wind is offshore for us. So anywhere you are fishing around, wherever you are, offshore wind means the wind comes off the shore onto the, uh, onto the, onto the water itself. So that's offshore wind. And what it does is it keeps that, it doesn't have a buildup of swell or chop, so that keeps that away. So therefore you can get away with fishing with that 15 knots of wind rather than that 15 knots of onshore, which is built up from Tasmania all the way to Victoria as such. Yep. So that's how I approach it. Slightly rougher, northwesterly wind. I find the fish bite the best in those winds. And I'm going to have my lures. I'm going to have four lures. I'm not going to run any more than that. May, might have a diver out, but I'm going to run four skirted lures. Pretty much I'm going to run between the 6-inch range to the 10-inch, but what I am going to do when I get there on the day and I see my first bait ball come up, I'm going to look in the water and do my best to see exactly what's in the water. And then I'm going to try and match. You're talking about the actual species of the The actual species of the bait. Yeah, that's right. So whether it's a red bait or a pilchard or slimies or yakkers, I'm going to do my best to try and interpret what they are and then I'm going to 
whether with my spread of lures, I'm going to then pick from that, pick from there, and favour one colour. So if they're red bait, I might have an extra red bait lure in as such, rather than running a slimy mackerel lure. So, but you'll always have. I'll always have them out. A, a really good variety because you yep. just don't know what they're going to. And that's right. Really and the best best way to do it is start with a red bait. Start with an evil angel, which is your sort of slimy colour. Start with a squid colour, and start with even like a lumo green, which is they say it's meant to look like a yakka. I reckon it looks like more of a party colour. But that there also catches a hell of a lot of fish. So, And another aspect of it is I would take away your... your, your uh, I wouldn't be running your outriggers. I'm not a massive fan for them for barrel bluefin. The reason for that is when a barrel comes up and crunches a lure, I want direct... Con- now, we're not marlin fishing where we're letting them run for, say, eight seconds. We, when it, we're running straight hooks in lures, trawled at roughly 10 kilometres, give or take. And as this fish comes up and hits that lure... We want a direct hook up on those on that lure. We don't want to have the, the the line running from my rod all the way up to the outrigger and then back to the lure, which could potentially drop three, four, five meters of of not necessarily slack line, but not as not pure drag pressure off your reel. Yep. So what I would like you to do, if to help you catch more fish, run your rigger arms, hook them to a great range of outrigger arms, and we have reviewed them a couple of times. So make sure you get your outrigger arms that go into the side of the boat. They're like a T piece, I guess you could say, more of an owl because it's not one been on the other side, but they come out the side of your boats, you pop your rods in, it spreads your rods out so you don't have to run your, your outriggers and you will have a better hookup rate running your, for instance, 24 kilo, we're running 8 kilo drag and we're running the strike just under 8 kilo, so probably around that 5 to 6. Once you get comfortable with the fish, you then uh, go up on the drag and away you go. Travis has asked, G'day Danger, I'm restoring my alloy, boy, alloy boat. Looking at putting checker plate flooring in, or should I replace the old marine ply with new marine ply? One of the reasons I suppose you've replaced something is you're trying to you're improving what was initially there. So I have I'm a bit reticent to replace it with existing marine ply. But one thing um, I'm not a massive fan of Redmond is 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 mixing your your steels, even if it is aluminium floor to aluminium floor, and that would be one of my things with. Um, replacing marine ply flooring with checker plate flooring. Like I wouldn't put stainless steel flooring in it because of the electrolysis that that might cause. Yep. I reckon I'd I'd go marine ply, but rather than putting carpet over the top of it, I'd have it then sealed with like a sea deck or something similar. Former signs, the stuff, sea deck and stuff. Yeah. Like we've seen just how much that technology has improved. It's great underfoot. It doesn't bruise your feet. Like you can actually have bare feet. But not only that, checker plate, holds a bloody lot of heat. Yeah, And absolutely. if you've got your dog on the boat, your dog can't sit on the stand on the checker plate, you can't stand on the checker plate. And not only that, if you get a bluefin and you're wrapped and you get your photos and you lay your bluefin on the checker plate floor, it starts to burn the fish. So yeah. I reckon what you've said, using the U-deck, is a really good idea. And and, a, and the trouble with if you are looking at checker plate flooring, um, depending on on sort of the the internal structure of the boat, it can tend to bow because it's not actually, like if, if it's three mil yeah. thick, it might, but most of it's probably one and a half mil thick. So it's going to it's gonna move. I've certainly seen it in plenty of boats where people have replaced the original flooring with checker plate flooring and it does move because you, you have to screw it down. So I'd go, yeah, marine ply. It's still used today, like Quintrex, Stace, or all these main... Um, really popular brands still use marine ply on their flooring, and 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 quite often it's not actually marine ply; it's just normal ply. But 
you, you know, put long, marine in front of it and you get an extra two grand. As long as there's <laughs> um, as long as there's good drainage, then you know it, it tends not to rot. Uh, Jeff, red is it worth me spending six hundred bucks on a dedicated whiting rod or a cheaper rod, or will a cheaper rod work? Now, Jeff, we get this question all the time around what's the right amount of money to spend on fishing gear. And, and generally, Aaron will say the same thing. It, it always depends on how much you're actually going to fish. If you're not going to fish a huge amount, Redmond, you know, it's hard to justify spending 600 bucks on a rod. But if you're going to use it all the time, then it's horses for courses. Yeah, you're spot on. And I, I'm running a Samurai Reaction on my whiting rods at the moment. It's a medium to fast taper rod. So it's got a really nice taper at the top of the rod there. And what it does is, it, I can guarantee you right now, that rod there would not catch me any more fish than what I would be using a $140 rod. Now, that rod, I think it retails around between $650 and $700. So that is on the pricey side. Uh, but the one thing it does do for me is it feels amazing in my hand. And now what I mean by that is it's so light. With the matched up with the Stratic 2500, I'm running on that one, it is so nice to use on your hand. You've got no idea. It is really, you don't feel the weight through your rod, your, your, you don't feel the weight through your wrist into your forearm because it's just weighted perfectly. Now, people will go, oh, you're soaking with a light whiting rod to hold. Well, when you do it every bloody day, for every day of the month, every day of the year, or a lot of the days of the year, it actually does get pretty heavy, Pat. Yep. So that's the reason that I use it. But if I wasn't supported by a fantastic company and saying that, there's like that want you to test out these gears. They contact you and say, hey, hey, Red, we really want you to test out these gear because we need to know where to fix it. So I work with these companies and say, hold on, I think this is too weighted forward or back. So the people that do fish a lot, they can have the, they're fortunate enough to go out there and have the comfortability rather than the trial and error that I have. So if I were you guys, I would, Jeff, if it was you and I'm fishing every day like I am, I'd get one. You're not going to catch any more fish. It's just going to feel nicer for you. But... Another great option is go to the Atomic Arrows range, which are around that $130 mark, which I've got. They're the ones I give to the boys on the boat every day they come out with me. That's the rod they use, and they keep... Well, they don't keep up with me on the, on the fish, Patrick, but, they, uh, <laughs> but they, uh, they definitely catch their fair share of fish, and they are a terrific rod as well to use. That's the Atomic Arrows roughly around... There's a, there's a uh, whiting tip, which is a fantastic rod. They've got the Brim Estuary and the likes in the range, which are pretty much the same rod in my opinion. That I'll get in trouble for saying that probably, but they are the same rod. So if you do see them in a tackle store, make sure you grab yourself one for 130 bucks, and you're going to catch as much fish as what I will with a six, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollar rod. That is the social club. If you've got a question for Aaron or I, make sure you send it into our Real Adventures social pages, or better yet, download our Real Adventures app. It's got all our latest tips, recipes, podcasts. It's free to download wherever you download your podcasts. All aboard for Dometic. Everything you need for adventures, big or small. Mobile living made easy. Dometic. It's time for All Aboard for Dometic. Everything you need for adventures, big or small. Dometic Mobile Living Made Easy. Our special guest this morning is John Cahill from Ebb Tide Tackle. Good morning, John. Hey, boys. How are you going? Going not too bad on this side of the fence. Well, every time we see you, John, and our social media has lit up with incredible catches, captures of tuna. And we were keen this morning um, not only to talk about ebb tide tackle, but just topwater fishing and the best ways to approach it if you haven't got into it before. But when it comes to tuna fishing, it's a bit more adventurous and a bit more exciting than just trawling around for five hours in a day. 
Look, it can be. It's um, thanks for getting me on, guys, for a chat on this. It's really um, a thing I'm passionate about. It's it's a totally different way about going about it, and sometimes it's actually the go-to technique where you'll probably struggle to catch a fish. Sometimes if you aren't doing this. In other times, it's kind of like, it's just what we do. So we don't, you know, you, you might go out and see signs of birds and think, oh, yeah, I'll put the lures in the water. We generally don't fire a cast until we find something that we're pretty sure about fish are here or, you know, there's really strong, strong signs that we're going to get a, a, a bite here. And what that can mean sometimes is um, you might do 160 kilometres to not fire a cast. You actually might not start fishing. So it's a real different mindset and some people aren't comfortable with that because, you know, they just want to catch fish and it's like if we've got lines in the water, we're a chance of catching a fish. So it's just a really different way about going about it. And we've, we've been doing um, bluefin locally this way for six or seven years when, you know, we, we probably started like everyone else where we would troll but then only cast when we saw a bust up or something. And that's changed to the point now where we don't even take out trolling gear. It's just go out with a mindset. We're going to go find fish, and when we find them, we're going to cast at them. In a funny way, it's almost really similar to, to fly fishing. You're, you're hunting the fish, and you're waiting for them to appear versus just blindly fishing You know, yeah, wherever got, you go. Yeah, it's got a lot of similarity to fly in, in that way. They take it a step further in that um, a, a lot of them won't actually even fire a cast especially in saltwater fly, until they visually see a fish. You know, that that pure excitement of, of firing a cast at an individual fish, which is like next level. I thought John was actually going to say they take it differently because they drive Range Rovers and wear Ray-Bans, but I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go easy. Don't, uh, don't talk about break. my compatriots like that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about uh, your, your lure choices, uh, John. You said something to us off air that I think is really important. It's about going out there and being equipped with, with different, I guess, different size lures and types of lures. Take us through your choice at the moment and what are you sort of your top sort of three or four that you want to have in your tackle box? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting subject. This. The, um, I think if anyone thinks, oh, I've got the magic lure, this is the one that, you know, works for me every time, you just actually haven't been out enough because eventually that lure will fail where they're not interested in it. We've all experienced it if you've done enough. And it's so frustrating because last week that lure was getting climbed all over and now they won't even look sideways at it. And it's, they, they are so temperamental and so much changes with these fish, um, sometimes even tied to tide or day to day, but certainly week by week. The effect of the moon and the way bait stacks up will significantly affect how they feed and, and how they react to things. Um, bait pushes through, you know, one week you might have really micro, um, like two inch, 50 mil kind of stuff that, uh, they, they feed on that stuff differently. Like they don't go and target individual bait fish that are 60 mils long. They power through schools with their mouth open, you know, trying to get like a whale, like trying to get a mouthful at a time. And you find when they do that, they don't turn back on the bait. They actually keep moving really fast. Um, so, and then on the flip side, you know, you might get perhaps later in the season when you get tilted runs or um, red bait runs, and it's a lot, actually, it actually gets easier um, when they're on that bigger bait. It's easier to match the profiles. But we can find sometimes that, well, we, we find this regularly, that every time you go out, except that it's different, you might have your starting one or two lures that you're always kind of, you get 
reliable results out of them. But if they're not working for you, you kind of got to have a bit of a bag of tricks to run through to see what is working today. And, you know, for us, we'll always run that 90 to 100 mil slim bait fish profile because we've got so many um, anchovy through our central bass rate waters. And it's really frustrating when they're on, say, 60 mil stuff, like actual bait, 90 mil can be too big. Um, you know, it's trial and error, and you've got to make sure. This is probably one thing where, where people muck up often. When they're moving fast through those small um, small size baits because they don't turn back, if your cast is not leading the school sufficiently, they'll never look at it. They're not going to turn back and get it. So it's like um, using a bit of footy parlance, um, you know, you got to lead your, your player. You've got to put your kick out in front of them. And it's the same with tuna. If your cast isn't out in front, if it's behind, forget about it. They're not going to come back. Um, so those small slim bait fish, uh, you know, sinking stick bait styles usually work fairly fast and erratically. That's probably our general go-to. Um, similar lure style, but stepping up into, say, 130, 140, even up to 170 mil long would be our um, next go-to, sinking stick bait. Um, thinking is actually kind of important a lot of the time, not because we've got to get down to them. People think, oh, we've got to get down to where they are. They're 15 metres down. It's not that. It's actually just getting your stick bait below the birds because your mutton birds and even gannets will mistake that for a bait fish profile and they grab it and you are not in the game if the bird is flying off with your lure or it's got tangled in it. So that's where thinking really actually comes into it. Um, but when they are being super finicky, you can't get a bite, we go for flashy lures. We'll use that kind of same profile from, say, 100 mil to 150, 160 mil, but floating stick baits. And, yes, we now we now might have bird issues, but sometimes that extra splash on the surface will be a, the key difference that might get a bite. The final trick in the bag, well, it's not the final trick. There's more than this, but I'm, I'm just talking about in those kind of three or four styles is to, if nothing's working, tie on a popper, give it a big pop, give it like that three-second pause, give it a big pop. We find poppers work for us. So often, they'll get that one or two bites when otherwise you would not have got a single bite. And it really goes against kind of the mindset of like, I've got to match the hatch. Because with a popper, you're not really matching the hatch. But I don't know, there's something about it when they're just not responding to anything else a popper can call them up. And guys, um, if you see tuna 30 metres down, they aren't too deep to bring up to the surface. It's two kicks of their tail. And um, if they want it, they're not too deep. You spoke before about leading the fish. Um, the way that you approach, whether it be a school of fish or, or what have you with your boat, is clearly an important part of, of what you do, John. Talk to us through... Um, sort of, I suppose, almost the mistakes that some people make when they are approaching tuna or, or top-feeding fish. Yeah, it's super tricky in our local waters, generally because there'll be other boats on them. So what you want to do, you might not be able to because um, some other knucklehead's gone in and, and done the wrong thing and where you want it to be is just now not an option. So that can be really tricky. Um, I super advocate finding your own fish and, and literally if there's, like, say, two boats on a school, that's almost enough for me to go, I'm out of here. Um, that can make it hard sometimes. You're, like, leaving the fish to go and try and find your own fish. But 
um, you know, these tuna schools, they're out there in numbers. Like when they decide to come up and sun themselves, you'll see how many different schools there actually are. Um, what I like to do is if I've got the time, if I'm the only boat, actually just sit back for a moment before you charge in and get so itchy I've got to fire a cast and try to get, get a sense of which direction the school is moving. And you can either get that from the ripples themselves of the fish because generally they'll form somewhat of a loose kind of arrowhead where there'll be the lead fish and you'll get a sense of direction. If they're actually feeding at the time, though, look for the turn. Um, mutton birds are, are – there's a lot of mutton birds at the moment in Central Australia, especially around Bar and Head. And don't get me wrong, they'll tell you where the fish are when they really get hardcore active feeding. But a lot of the time you get false signals from mutton birds that the turns do not lie. Wherever the turns are, if they are actively dipping and giving those excited signs that they're above fish, they are precisely above the lead fish every time. So you get a sense which direction the turns are flying, they're dipping down, get your cast 15, 20, 30 metres even ahead of those turns and you're in the zone. John, before we let you go, it's easy for us to say John Cahill from Ebb Tide Tackle. Take us through what is Ebb Tide Tackle and basically what you guys have on offer in your store. Oh, thanks for that. Um, Ebb Tide Tackle is an online premium tackle store specialising especially in casting tackle from both you know, at the extreme end, you know, your, your heavy tackle, GT tackle, right through tuna, kingfish, um, and we're quite a bit in the freshwater market too for especially Murray Cod. We cover a big range, but the, the one thing about our store is we, we really target the premium end of gear, not your Kmart specials um, by any stretch, and think casting tackle, think outside tackle. Perfect. There you go. If you want more information on Ebb Tide Tackle, head to ebbtidetackle.com. John, just quickly, you've also got a cracking podcast as well where you go into detail around topwater um, fishing as well. So if you want to just give that a bit of a plug, it's it's a fantastic listen. Thanks for that. Yeah, it's, um, we, we started off a, a podcast probably roughly the beginning of COVID was, uh, was a good incentive to kind of do something <laughs> You're different. stuck at home. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's called The Outflow. Um, we've put out about 20 episodes now. We want to do a lot more. We're on the verge of cracking into the top 100 sporting podcasts in Australia, um, and we want to forge our way in there and, you know, let's, let's get into the top 50. We have some great guests. Sometimes it's just me and Andy um, shooting the breeze over what our opinions are on different things. Love people to subscribe and have a listen. Sounds great. Beautiful work. John Cahill from Ebb Tide Tackle. Thanks for joining us on Real Adventures this morning. Thank you, guys. Red's Review for Club Marine. Insure your boat with Club Marine, Australia's leading provider of boat insurance. Call and ask for a PDS to see if this insurance is right for you. It's time for Red's Review for Club Marine. Redmond, you had a Wonderful day during the week with the little man, Finn. You took him up to the Melbourne Aquarium, and that is our Reg review for this week. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's a pretty fishy place, that place. It's, uh, it's not a bad place to go at all, Patrick. It's about $36 to 40 bucks a head, roughly. If you book online, you get it a bit cheaper. There are a few family deals as well, which uh, we actually got given the present for Finn's first birthday to go, and they, they bought a family pass for us to go, but the family pass, I think, was three kids and two adults. So they actually, which are over three, where Finn's under one, so you wouldn't have to pay for him anyway. <laughs> so poor old uh, Ali uh, 
Curry's sister got in, got us that, which cost her about seventy dollars more than it was meant to. <laughs> but uh, no, that's all right. But no, it is a good place to take your take your kid. And Finn, uh, my child's a very he loves using his eyes and he's very alert. He's always looking around. So we thought it'd be a great place to take him. And he loves using his eyes, doesn't he? Like he's not he, a lazy he, kid. He likes to he's, see things. He's very alert. Like if you drop a pin on the ground, he'll just quickly look at it. Like he's just he's annoying. You sound like every parent. No, no, ever. this kid's an, no. He's an idiot. But, he's an idiot. Nah, <laughs> no, I'll be honest. No, nah, every parent. There's something special. No, there's not. No, trust yeah. me. He, oh, he is special. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> he is special. <laughs> this Car- kid is a nut job. Kari would kill you. They'd be very, very careful. <laughs> uh, the Melbourne Aquarium, though, a great place to take your family, yep. particularly for those who have got an appreciation for animals and the, the outdoors. Um, we were speaking off air, though. If it, it, it's a, it's different because the animals that are in there, even though they're really well cared for, they're almost serving. The greater, <laughs> the greater good of promoting uh, the environment, even though you know they're caged essentially. Yeah, and I uh, and I, I said last week I'm no greenie, and I'll be honest with you, I I love no, I, I, I'm aware I, of that, I, but I love I love what we've got. I love the ocean. I love animals. I love everything. And so I don't, I don't struggle, but I, I'll tell you what, I didn't like the penguins being locked up in that little cage with a pool that I could afford at my house. With them to swim in. I don't know. It just seemed very... But that's the balance of... Of... Um, Education. Promoting and educating yep. people that we've got to preserve what we've got. And there's a, there's a, there's a great um, Netflix doco on at the moment called Seaspiracy. And Ooh. it talks about um, the environmental impacts that people and humans have had on the world's oceans and what it means globally for us as a species. and um, it's, it's actually quite fascinating. Incre- it's an incredibly dangerous industry to call out because there's so much money that's made off mm, the ocean. It's huge. If you're interested in that sort of thing, Seaspiracy on Netflix is a cracker at the moment. But sorry, to, no, that's to, to finish off I haven't seen that. our review, a great day spent, a yeah. couple of hours. I'm not. There's heaps of signs saying don't tap on the windows and I had to... Uh, there's a pilchard enclosure, and they were pretty cool. Like they were racing around this enclosure. Like it was really cool to see. And little Finn just like looking at him. He just makes these like high pitched noises, like turning his head, looking at him like a, when a dog squeaks a toy. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's looking at him like, "What's going through your head, mate?" And I tapped the glass, and he's like, "Look at me, going," because you'd see the reaction of the fish, and he's like tapping it back. So if you do have young children, or even old children like myself and Patrick, make sure you do go there, support what it is, as in for the education, sustainable side of it. But one thing is, if you're like me, you might feel a bit awkward then when the old penguin's walking through his poo on the snow ground. I know, poor little I don't know, but it is. A, it, it was a great day, and he, he thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and they do, and they do an incredible job. Oh, the people that work. I've there. got a couple of friends that work there, yep. and I and I did do a bit of work with the aquarium. Uh, oh, jeez, a long time ago now, and we. The eagle rays, I don't know if they're still the same ones that I caught, but the eagle rays that are in there and a couple we actually did gummies and a couple of flying gurnard and a few other bits and pieces that we that I uh, that we caught for the aquarium. They come out on the big charter boat that I worked on and the big tank come on and the care that went from the people that worked there into the each animal was just like So I passionate. Would, yeah, and I was doing my best. Like the eagle rays, like they're one of the most ferocious bloody things to catch in the water. They are super fun to catch. They're a game species, you know, out South Australia there's a few competitions targeting them, Pat and when you've got one of them, you've got to transfer it into a tank on a boat out of a net but look after it at the same time with it flicking its tail everywhere. It's pretty scary. But the amount of care that, like, by the time I got it to the boat in the net and I laid on it, like, it sounds stupid, but you lay on its tail with the rags and you hold it down, then they get the air. Like, you know that they do their job extremely well and properly. So uh, full credit to everyone that does work at the Melbourne Aquarium.
That is Red's Review for Club Marine. That was Red's Review for Club Marine. Need insurance for your boat or jet ski? Get a quote from Club Marine, Australia's leading provider of boat insurance. Call or search Club Marine to find out more. Ask for a PDS to see if this insurance is right for you. You're listening to Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood. Welcome back to Real Adventures. It's time for Red's tip. We're talking about turning whilst dealing with a heavy tide. Yeah, so basically what we're going to talk about today is uh, um, by using your engine to your efficiency. And now what I mean by that is when you've got tide or you're in tight areas as such, uh, when you're in a boat, and for an example, a jet ski is probably the prime example. And even I had a, I got a mate that works on the police boats, and they've got jet. Well, they had a jet, um, a jet powered vessel. Yep. And he said when they were in the rip a couple of times using jet powered uh, powered um, vessels, they had to like knock the boat out of gear or pull the boat back where the jet slowed down. And they actually, when they're crossing bars and stuff, it was a little bit unsafe because they actually lost power. Yeah. Because where the, and that's you got to keep it speed. That's if you've right. Got a jet boat. Yep. That's right. And that's how your boat actually the the, the ferry uh, the ferry sorry the police boat was actually moving where they didn't want it to turn to one eighty one way because it was you needed to use the power but they didn't want to accelerate at that time and that comes back to using your power of your engine to your efficiency around those tight spots or in tidal waters and there's so many people that I see all around harbours around the whole country Pat and I see it everywhere we go they just don't use their engine and I can understand why because it can be scary to throttle to use your throttle it can be quite scary now what I mean by that when you're trying to throttle in a tight spot and you go too far all of a sudden you fling in and you lose control of your boat because you, you panic and you turn the wrong way but what it does do it actually allows for you to turn your boat so if I'm approaching for instance a trailer pat and the tide at the Bowen River is coming in I don't just approach the trailer really slow and then knock and then just hope for the best that it slides up and what the reason I say the Bowen River is the tide runs parallel to where we actually put the boat in uh, the trailer in the water to drive up so it, you need to drive on a slight angle with your nose just tacking into the tide and the last minute turn it on onto the trailer but if you don't actually use your power to keep moving, keep momentum, you'll miss it and you'll end up into the into the pontoons. So it's really important that you don't be stupid and just go full throttle. But when you do want to turn in a tight spot around a, a harbour or a boat ramp or in tide, make sure you use your throttle, whether it's forward or back. Use it to turn and turn your steering wheel before you accelerate so you actually go in the direction that you want to go. So don't just accelerate and have your steering wheel turn right. You're about to turn left. Don't start to accelerate and just quickly try and turn left hand down as you're accelerating. This is not a car. You're not, it's not a car. You're not running out of tread by turning on it no. on itself and you're not moving. So turn the engine to the direction. You're, so I come off the trailer and you'll see as I come off the trailer in reverse, I turn my wheel all the way around the other way why my momentum still going back and then I accelerate just a little bit it spins me around the other way and I can head out to Queenslift to go catch a nice bag of whiting so using power is uh, Red's tip this week and it's now time for the Flying Gaff Patrick what do you got for us this week? Yeah the Flying Gaff is heading down to Gippsland where a trailer has apparently failed a poor Bodie and his beautiful Whitley has ended up on the highway Redmond it's the Bodie it's a it's fisherman's worst nightmare uh, that your boat ends up on the tarmac, it actually on, on the is. bitumen, rather than actually in the water. Um, so it's a timely reminder, and we talk about this all the time, that when you are going on a decent trek, or if you're just driving a couple of minutes down the road, then make sure you do your checklist, you go through the trailer, you look at um, 
where your tie down straps are, all those your things. Your winch. So you make sure your mate has actually put the safety chain on or the winch because it's just not worth <laughs> losing your boat. Um, and, on the middle of the Gippsland Highway. <laughs> and the nightmare that will ensue from it. So the gaff heads that way this week. Thanks for your company this morning on Real Adventures. We look forward to chatting all things fishing, boating and the great outdoors. Next week, it's time to go fishing. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi-finals. all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.